0: The Christian faith is a gift of God's grace. The Christian life is a gift of God's grace. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us.
1: Pastor Peter Bender talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference.
0: And that means that our Lutheran piety is also a gift. All too often we see it as another work of the law, something that we must do. Instead, Christ meets us there with his Word and Spirit. And in our daily devotional life, he teaches us what it is to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us.
1: You can meet and hear Pastor Peter Bender making the case for Lutheran piety Friday, June 9th and Saturday, June 10th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The title, Pastor, sounds a little quaint, doesn't it? People still refer to the man who gets up on Sunday morning and preaches or tells a story or shows a video. They still refer to him often as a pastor, but more and more that term is becoming antiquated in the church. It's not a good thing. It's it's a bad thing, but it is happening. The term pastor is being replaced by, well, it started out as leader, and then it got a qualifier, a vision-casting leader. Maybe your pastor has even talked about his own vision casting or the fact that he is there to be the visionary leader for the congregation, that also is not a good thing. Welcome back to Issues Etc. on this Tuesday afternoon, April the 18th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be listening to Pastor Chris Roseborough, Fighting for the Faith, Making the Case Against Vision Casting Leaders in the Church from the 2015 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference Pastor Chris Rosebro is pastor of Kansfinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota, and host of the daily internet talk show called Fighting for the Faith. Here's his presentation, Making the Case Against Vision Casting Leaders.
2: Now tonight, I'm going to be making the case against vision casting leaders, which is not actually an easy thing to do because it requires us to do some things. And so if somebody say, how do you make a case against vision casting leaders? The simple answer is it's complicated. And so I'm going to need to ask your permission to do something, though. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of gauge your reaction here. I need permission to be controversial. Is that okay with you all? All right. All right. You'll note that the controversy comes a little bit later in the, uh, in the presentation. So we're going to have to do some groundwork. How many of you ever heard somebody say, I'm not into organized religion? Yep. Yep. I've heard this quite a bit. Of course, the snarky guy inside of me likes to say, so what are you into? Disorganized religion? because um, you, know, you think that, well, you're not into organized religion, that means you must be into like anarchy. But reality is this, is that um, the person who says that, they're not actually advocating for anarchy. Uh, they're, they're, they actually want a completely different organization do you understand what I'm saying? So they don't want an unorganized religion. They want a religion that's differently organized. And that's something that you have to keep in mind because what they're really bucking against is the ecclesiology given to us by God. Now, they wouldn't be able to say it in those terms. It's like, yeah, yeah, I got a real issue with that ecclesiology that's revealed in Scripture. <laughs> wow, okay. Um, they, won't, they won't talk like that. But this is a symptom of postmodern society. We live in postmodernity. Welcome. It's it's quite amazing where you know a, a guy can say he's a girl. Yeah, right? A white woman can be black. Right? All because this is what they feel, right? But that's all symptomatic of postmodernity. And understand this postmodernity is well vehemently anti-institutional. Institutions are bad. In the way of postmodern thinking. And that would include an institutional church. And so, people who've bought into postmodernity, they'll talk about the church as a movement. The church is a movement. The church is a movement. How many of you heard of the church as a movement? All right. It's a dangerous way to think about the church because a movement doesn't need office holders, a movement needs leaders, leaders that get results. That's all that matters, because a movement has to move forward. A movement's got to grow. A movement's got to, well, take its stage on history and have an impact and change the world. And you're not going to get that with a whole bunch of people sitting in their offices meeting the needs of people. Right? So, that's just kind of to start this off. So, as we explore this topic... We're going to have to spend a little bit of time in the scriptures. We're going to start there, and we're going to look at a couple of things that kind of battle this idea that the church is a movement. I'm going to say something really radical. The church is an institution. It's not a movement. It's an institution. And pastors are not leaders. They're servants who are office holders. And there's clearly defined duties of the pastoral office. And if your pastor doesn't recognize that he's an office holder, most likely he's going to default to the American mindset regarding the need for a leader. In other words, by doing something like that, he's going to end up basically changing the whole tone and culture in a very tacit way where everything rubs up against things the wrong way because everything's going to get run through the law rather than the gospel pragmatism will take over, results, numbers, nickels, noses, those all become the thing because you've got to keep the movement growing, right? So we'll take a look at some scripture, I'm going to spend a little bit of time reading a a manuscript, part of a manuscript I've written regarding vision casting leaders, it will have to have a transition in there, then I'll get to the controversial stuff, and if there's any time, maybe we'll see if we'll have some questions. Our opening text, Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. This is a fascinating text. In fact, this recently came up in the lectionary. Here's what it says. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120. He said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his bowels gushed out, and everyone said, (laughs) "Ooh." And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that this field was called in their own language Akadama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another one take his office. Did you hear that? Listen listen to these words. Let another one take his office. Quoting from the Psalms. In other words, Peter was under this really weird idea that somehow he was an office holder, and that Judas held an equal office and that once that office was vacated, somebody needed to fill that office. That doesn't sound like a movement to me. Because, you know, think about it, here in the United States, I mean, the President of the United States is currently Barack Obama. He's the holder of the office of President of the United States. And we can all look at that document called the Constitution, and we can see that that office has been created by the Constitution. There's a way in which somebody's placed into that office. There's ways of removing people from that office. And there are duties of the office, and there's limits on the authority of that office. And we all can look at it, and it's objective, right? Peter here is saying that the... The apostolate, if you would, is an office, established by Christ, which implies that there's duties of the office, which implies that certain people can hold it and other people cannot. And so he lists for us the qualifications for this office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all of the time that Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So there's your qualifications. Somebody who has been with us from the beginning, when Jesus was baptized, saw all of his miracles, heard his teaching, is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so who's qualified to fill this vacant office? Answer, well, we got two guys. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And so they prayed, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these you two have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So then they took dice, <laughs> cast them, and up came Matthias. Knowing what you know about who can hold this apostle, apostolic office. Is there anybody alive today who can fill this office? No, not one. So this office has served its function. And is is this not what the Apostle Paul says, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets? Right? They are a foundational office. But what about the pastoral office? i point you to a simple text. It's pretty clear. 1 Timothy chapter 3 starting at verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, there it is, the office of overseer. That's the pastoral office. So we have the office of pastor, we have the office of apostle. Technically, you could talk about the office of of prophet. These are offices, which means the church is not a movement. Straight up. Never has been, never will be. And if the pastoral office is an office, then Scripture, you would think, has pretty clearly defined, well, responsibilities, qualifications, disqualifications for the office. Does it not? What does Paul write? He must study and show himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who rightly handles the word of truth. He must be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and rebuke and refute those who contradict it right? Those are the duties of the office. Somebody who is in the pastoral office, who is not dispensing his duties, word, sacrament, doctrine, teaching, rebuking, building up, all of it is derelict. Somebody who is not fulfilling the duties of the office needs to be removed from the office, and somebody needs to be put in place who will dispense the duties of the office,
1: we're listening to Pastor Chris Rosebro make the case against vision casting leaders in the church from the 2015 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. He's talking about the office of the ministry, and when we come back, he'll have a few things to say about the office of the ministry and probably the most famous pastor in the world right now, Joel Osteen. faith in american christianity is most often seen as an act of will it's a desire it's an attitude it's a habit pastor todd peppercorn on his presentation at this summer's issues etc making the case conference making the case for a lutheran view of depression but what happens when you have a mental illness whether we're talking about depression bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or any number of mental illnesses, all of these mess with your brain, your ability to interact with the outside world. How does God work in that kind of circumstance? You can meet and hear Pastor Todd Peppercorn June 9th and 10th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, just look for the Making the Case logo at issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385.
0: Old theology, new technology. You're listening to Issues Etc. Throughout the 50 days of Easter, sacred music for the world. LutheranPublicRadio.org. Listen 24-7 to sacred music for the Easter season. LPR, LutheranPublicRadio.org. At Hope Lutheran Church in Sunbury, Ohio, you will find rest for your soul, strength for the day, forgiveness of sins, and hope for the future through Jesus Christ because at Hope you'll hear the Word of God faithfully taught and receive the sacraments faithfully delivered. This is Pastor Ben Meyer inviting you to join us at Hope for Bible class and Sunday school at 9 a.m. and the divine service at 1030 a.m. Find us on the web at org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd
1: Wilkin on this Tuesday, April the 18th, we're listening to some audio from the 2015 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Pastor Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith, Making the Case Against Vision Casting Leaders in the Church. He's talking about the office of the ministry or the pastoral office. He goes on to discuss, well, the pastor that many people associate with Christianity today, Joel Osteen.
2: I remember years ago when Joel Osteen first became the pastor, And I use that term very loosely when I'm talking about Joel Osteen. He became the pastor of Lakewood, and um, he was doing an interview, and people noted the fact that he didn't talk about sin and all that kind of stuff. He literally said that he believed that he had a special calling from God to really just lift people up and to be positive, to which we could all point to the Scriptures and say, well, Titus chapter 1 says you must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Jesus says to the church in, John, in Luke 24, he says this, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. We have a mission. We have a directive. We have a message. And we have very clearly defined things that we are to do with those who refuse to preach the message as delivered. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? How many Christianities are there? One. There's only one. And here's the little secret, by the way. Um, I know a Baptist is going to be listening to this, but listen to me on this one, okay? A friend of mine, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, once said this. He said, you know, Chris, I think there's a huge difference between you and Paul McCain of uh, CPH, to which I said, well, probably. <laughs> and he said this. He said, I'm convinced that Paul McCain wants to get a copy of Luther's small catechism into the hands of every LCMS Lutheran. And I said, I think that's probably a fair way of putting it. And, I said, and he said, but Chris, I get this distinct feeling that you feel like it's your job to get a copy of Luther's small catechism in the hands of everybody who calls himself a Christian. And I said, that's right. See, here's the dirty little secret. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Are you ready for this? Everybody who calls himself a Christian is required, duty bound, to believe what we teach and confess as confessional Lutherans. Because what we believe, teach, and confess is exactly what the scriptures teach. And it's exactly what the church has taught from the beginning. In other words, it's not our jobs to capitulate and compromise. It's our job to proclaim. We're on the high ground doctrinally. Keep that in mind. Just keep that in mind. So our two passages so far. We talked about the office of apostle, the office of pastor. I could take you to other passages, but let me skip ahead in my notes here because I think I've made the point. Scripture is clear that God is the one who gives us pastors. God is the one who calls. You look at uh, Acts chapter 20, for instance, Paul's great address to the elders of the church of Ephesus, and he says this to them. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Oh, there we go. Who's the one who calls pastors? The Holy Spirit is the one who calls pastors. This is what Scripture says. Side note. I know way too many congregations that have rightly called a pastor, and that pastor gets into office, and he's preaching long gospel, sin and grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. And the congregation will not bear it, and they unbiblically, with no biblical grounds whatsoever, have him removed from office. This is sinful. Sinful needs to stop. God is the one who calls pastors. Unless he has a major moral failing or unless he's teaching false doctrine, then you're duty bound to receive from him what God is giving through him. Does that make sense? So we're talking about the pastoral office. So pay careful attention. To yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Then you have that wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which oftentimes we avoid because the charismatics abuse it, but this is a great passage. Uh, Verse 28 God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Did you catch that? God is the one who is appointed in the church. God is the one who has appointed in the church. Now to our Lutheran confessions. We all know what Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession teaches. Augsburg 4 says this It is taught among us that we cannot obtain the forgiveness of sins and righteousness before God by our own merits, our works, or satisfaction, but we receive forgiveness of sin and become righteous before God by grace for Christ's sake through faith when we believe that Christ suffered for us and that for his sake our sin is forgiven and righteousness and eternal life is given to us. To which we all say, Amen. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, by what Christ has done alone. It's right there. Article 4. What's Article 5 say? You want Article 4? You need Article 5. Here's what Article 5 says. To obtain such faith, God instituted the office of the ministry. The message goes out from pulpits filled by men whom God has appointed whom God has sent and you sit there and say yeah my pastor though he stutters so I don't care about that learn how to receive the gospel from a man who stutters and stop being so arrogant and prideful repent Christ's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Think about it. So to obtain such a faith, God has instituted the office of the ministry. That is, providing, provided the gospel and the sacraments. Through these, as through means, He gives the Holy Spirit, who works faith, when and where he pleases, in those who hear the gospel. And the gospel teaches that we have a gracious God, not by our own merits, but by the merit of Christ when we believe this. There's a condemnation in this article, by the way, and this is an important one when we talk about vision-casting leaders. Condemned are the Anabaptists and others who teach that the Holy Spirit comes to us through our own preparations, thoughts, and works without the external word of the gospel. Keep that one tucked away because every single vision-casting leader claims that they have received a direct revelation from God that they had to prepare themselves in order to show themselves worthy to receive from God. Our confessions say, "Uh uh-uh. They're condemned. Keep that in mind. So the fourth part of Article 5 categorically rules out, in the LCMS, in any confessional Lutheran body, anybody claiming to be a vision-casting leader. You want to bring them up on false doctrine charges? Argue that text. Our confessions say. Bring it up on that. Now, as I move into this next part, it's going to be a little bit heady. I apologize, but it's necessary. Let me begin with a quote that is attributed to John Chrysostom, but probably didn't come from him. The quote is, the road to hell is paved with the skulls of erring priests, with bishops as their signposts. It's a great quote. I wish Chrysostom had said it. I have my own version of it. Let me read the original quote with my addendum. The road to hell is paved with the skulls of erring priests, with bishops as their signposts, and the final miles are paved with the skulls of vision casting leaders, with church growth consultants as their light posts. And at the very end there's a laser rock and roll smoke light show. Here's a quote from Rick Warren. Rick Warren says, "Quote, you must change the primary role of the pastor from minister to leader." What's the difference? In leadership you take the initiative. In ministry you respond to the needs of others. It's a direct quote from Rick Warren's pastors.com ministry toolbox. Let me read again. You must change the primary role of the pastor from minister to leader, to which I say, uh, based on whose authority are you making this change? Who gave you this authority? You must change the primary role of the pastor from minister to leader. What's the difference? In leadership, you take the initiative. In ministry, you respond to the needs of others. When I pronounce the absolution, I say, I as a called and ordained servant of the word. And that's kind of the key. Good ecclesiology causes a pastor to realize he's a servant. He doesn't think that Paul's being weird when he starts his epistles by saying, Paulus, ha to Christu, slave of Christ.
1: We're listening to the 2015 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Pastor Chris Rosebro making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church. Folks, vision-casting leaders are one problem with pop American Christianity— Another is the ongoing exodus of men on Sunday morning. What's the solution there? To offer football Sundays or wrestling or barbecues or things like that, the things men seem to like? No. The answer is to recall men to the true masculinity that is actually only found in the man Jesus Christ. That's part of the central theme of the issues etc. book of the month Man Up. The Quest for Masculinity, by regular guest, Pastor Jeff Hemmer. You can find out more about Man Up at our website, issuesetc.org. It's on every page of the website. Or call Concordia Publishing House and order Man Up, The Quest for Masculinity, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for April, Man Up by Pastor Jeff Hemmer. When we come back, some more on that Rick Warren quote. Stay tuned.
3: Have you been too busy to get your associate's, bachelor's, or master's degree? Concordia University, Wisconsin offers 50 online educational options. Find out more at issuesetc.org. Click the Concordia University online logo and enter the program code issues to waive your application fee. Concordia University, Wisconsin is here to strengthen and support the church. Lifelong Lutheran learning org and click Concordia University Wisconsin online.
1: How do we find real masculinity with Jesus hanging on a cross? The Issues Etc. book of the month for April is titled Man Up: The Quest for Masculinity. It's written by regular guest pastor Jeff Hemmer. You can find out more at issuesetc.org or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Men in all stages of life will appreciate Man Up. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Man Up, 1-800-325-3040.
0: If you're like me, you remember when education was about the basic skills of reading, writing, and arithmetic, and about reading great literature and history that gave our kids models of what it is to be a good person. Memoria Press's Classical Christian Curriculum is bringing this kind of education back. Get $5 off your next order by using the coupon code LPR. For more information, go to memoriapress.com. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. LCMS Rural and Small Town Mission exists to support and encourage congregations in rural and small town settings. In partnership with LCMS districts, RSTM is uniquely positioned to make a major impact in revitalization support, community engagement and outreach training, congregational partnership development, and worker support through providing and developing resources geared specifically to rural and small-town congregations. Check us out at lcms.org slash rstm or give us a call at our office. We're here to help. Providing artillery support for the church militant on the front
1: lines. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by joining the Issues Etc. 300. Pilgrim Lutheran, Santa Monica, California. Emmanuel Lutheran, Terre Haute, Indiana. Trinity Lutheran, San Angelo, Texas. Trinity Lutheran and Emmanuel Lutheran, Holloway, Minnesota. St. John Lutheran, Schaumburg, Illinois. Our Savior Lutheran, Pipestone, Minnesota. Real Lutheran Fellowship, Rochester, Minnesota. Living Word Lutheran Church, The Woodlands, Texas. St. James Lutheran, Logansport, Indiana. St. John's Lutheran, States. Center, Iowa, and Trinity Lutheran, West Chicago, Illinois. Find out how your church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to our website, issuesetc.org, click support, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation joins the Issues Etc. 300, we'll publicize your congregation on the radio, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org, click support, the Issues Etc. 300. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're listening to the 2015 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference presentation by Pastor Chris Rosebro, pastor of Kunstfinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota, and host of the daily internet talk show called Fighting for the Faith. He's making the case against division casting leaders in the church. Before the break, he had quoted Rick Warren. Now he returns to that quote.
2: Now, what I find fascinating about that quote from Rick Warren, and here's something a little bit controversial, and this is really gauche of me, but I found an interesting quote from Adolf Hitler that sounds a lot like it. (laughs) Said Adolf Hitler, quote, the people don't want ministers any longer, they want leaders. It was just too close to not point it out. Now, over the last three decades, there's been a major shift in evangelicalism, which, by the way, what on earth is evangelicalism? Does it just mean you're not Roman Catholic? <laughs> I mean, I, that, this, this, that, this is a question that needs to be answered. What is evangelicalism, and why on earth would anybody who's a Lutheran want to be one? Right? Over the last three decades, there's been a major shift in evangelicalism as it pertains to the functions of pastors. With the rise of the seeker-driven movement and the modern megachurch, a new ecclesiastical model has been developed, and it has also been deployed. Unlike the pastoral office outlined in the Lutheran Confessions and in the biblical text that I just read, with its emphasis on the functional roles of preaching the word and administering the sacraments, the new ecclesiastical model utilized by evangelical megachurches emphasizes visionary leadership and preaching that it intentionally, and I mean this, intentionally eschews exegetical verse-by-verse messages in favor of sermons that instead address the felt needs of unbelievers. See Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Church book, uh, chapter on preaching, uh, preaching to the unchurched. It's frightening. So, I will examine the secret driven movement's leadership models, its functions, its goals, and compare and contrast that to the functions of the pastoral office, as defined by the Lutheran confessions. So when one thinks of a pastor, one often thinks of the term shepherd. The two terms in many people's minds are practically synonymous, but shepherding is not efficient, doesn't get immediate results, and many of today's church growth consultants and gurus are are pushing for something totally different. Therefore, the idea of slow, patient, tedious care, protection of, and feeding of sheep is a term and concept that is not only despised in in the seeker-driven movement, it's openly rejected. Now, an example of this can be found in Andy Stanley's 2007 Christianity Today's Leadership Journal article titled, Get It Done Leadership. In it, Stanley openly disdains the idea of a pastor being a shepherd, and his reasoning sounds... Like many of the arguments used by old mainline liberals in their attacks against many of the doctrines and moral precepts revealed in Scripture, said Stanley, quote, well, he's asked the question, should we stop talking about pastors as shepherds? That's the question. Stanley's response, absolutely. That word needs to go away. Jesus talked about shepherds because there was one over there in a pasture and he could point to it. But to bring in that imagery today and say, Pastor, you're the shepherd of the flock. No, I've never seen a flock. I've never spent five minutes with a shepherd. It was culturally relevant in the time of Jesus, but it's not culturally relevant anymore. Nothing works in our culture with that model except the sense of gentle pastoral care. Obviously, that is a a face of church ministry, but that's not leadership. Next question. Isn't leadership the biblical word? Or shepherd the biblical word for pastor? Yeah, it, it's the first century word, though. If Jesus were here today, would he talk about shepherds? No he would point to something that we all know and and we'd say, oh yeah, I know what that is. So Jesus told Peter the fisherman to feed my sheep, but he didn't say to the rest of them, go ye therefore into all the world and be shepherds and feed my sheep. By the time of the book of Acts, the shepherd model is gone. It's about establishing elders and deacons and their qualifications. Shepherding doesn't seem to be the emphasis, even when it it was cultural and an illustration of something. If shepherding was... Only a cultural illustration of something that Jesus was trying to emphasize, as Stanley postulates, the question immediately rises in one's mind what then was Jesus trying to emphasize? So Stanley goes on to say, and he says this well, what we have to do is identify the principle, which that the, the leader is responsible for the care of people that he's been given that I'm to care for and equip the people in the organization to follow Jesus. But when we talk about the literal illustration and bring it into our culture, then people can make it anything they want because nobody knows much about it. In other words, what matters is that a leader understand that he or she has been tasked with the job of caring for and equipping people to follow Jesus. The model employed by that leader in Stanley's way of thinking is not bound to any biblical norms. Instead, Stanley believes that a church leader could legitimately employ the CEO leadership model used in the corporate world or whichever model seems to be best suited to meet the needs of a church in any given cultural context, said Stanley. One of the criticisms I get is, quote, your church is so corporate. I read blogs all the time. Bloggers complain. The pastor's like a CEO. And I say, okay, you're right. Now, what, why is that a bad model? Kind of get the idea of what's going on here. Now, get this. The seeker-driven movement, they know all about what Scripture says. They're familiar with all of the words, and they acknowledge that all those words are in the Bible. They just don't apply to us. Because, of course, when Jesus talked about shepherding, that was just a cultural thing. Is this not the same argument that liberals use when they talk about women's ordination? Right? Well, back in Paul's day, that was, you know, culturally the norm. And so we're not bound to that, that because that was a cultural thing that he was doing, so we can ordain women. It's the same argument, the same tactic. So he's familiar with everything Scripture says, very familiar, but um, he just doesn't think it's important. So what's the principle behind the CEO model? We're going to talk about that. Yeah, the CEO model. A principle is a principle, Stanley says, and God created all the principles. So what's the principle behind the CEO model? He says, follow me. Follow we never works. Ever, it's follow me. God gives a man or a woman the gift of leadership And any organization that has a point leader with accountability and freedom to use their gift to do it well, unfortunately in the church world, we're afraid of that. Has it been abused? Of course, but to abandon the model is silly. Churches should quit saying, oh, that's what businesses do. That whole attitude is so wrong and it hurts the church, Stanley says. So there you go. You just need to embrace what the the business world does. Now, let me ask you this. Um, how does the business world define success? Money, profit, yeah, market share. It's all about getting out there. It, you know, the business world is, 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 see, back in the day, okay, the way it worked... Is that, you know, little regions would build little armies and they'd go and fight each other and they'd gain territory and pillage and stuff like that. And people would die and get hurt and it was just a mess. And so in the 21st century, they put on a suit and tie and they just do the same thing. Okay? <laughs> but it's all about, really, it's really, it's, it's combat. It's market share combat for a dollar. That's what it's all about. That's how they define success. But, you know, Stanley has no problem adopting this idea of success, their tactics, if you would, when it comes to the church. Years ago, I was actually seriously considering putting together one of those financial cable news network looking websites with like a, a crawl at the bottom with stocks. And I was rather than being like NASDAQ and you know, different companies and what their stock price was. I was going to put like Willow Creek, Saddleback, you know, and all the major, you know, right. And, you know, and have, like, a financial update. You know, this week, you know, this, this church's stock is up. This church is down. And you talk about mergers and acquisitions. There's a lot of that going on, by the way. Hillsong is, like, the biggest mergers and acquisitions church on the planet right now. If, you're, if you know anybody in a charismatic church, they've had conversations with Hillsong about joining their brand. And that's how the conversations go, by the way. So, we continue reading. In terms of the shifting culture... I say thanks to guys like Bill Hybels and others who have been unafraid to say, uh, we have a corporate side of our ministry. This is still Stanley speaking. It's going to be the best corporate institution it can possibly be, and we're not going to try to merge first century stuff into it. The church wasn't an organization in the first century. They weren't writing checks or buying property. The church has matured and developed over the years, but for the same reason, the last thing to change is the structure of the church. These guys are intentionally, on purpose, changing the entire ecclesiastical structure of the church. And they don't feel even one pang of guilt.
1: Not one. Pastor Chris Roseborough is making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church from the 2015 Issues Etc. Making the Case conference. He's talking about Andy Stanley. When we come back, Stanley's approach to the pastoral office
0: the 500th anniversary of the Reformation approaches a good time to ask who are we as confessional Lutherans what's our heritage The Confessional Lutherans for Christ Commission has produced the Layman's Guide to Theological History. Go to theclcc.org and see which of these presentations and books would be most helpful to you and your fellow parishioners. And consider becoming a member with us as the CLCC seeks to help more people know what it means to be a confessional Lutheran. Theclcc.org. Dr. Anthony Eslin will be speaking on the topic of imagination and education at the 2nd Annual Wittenberg Academy Family Retreat which will be held at Camp Okaboji in Milford, Iowa on April 27th through the 29th, 2017. Join us and be immersed in God's word, thoughtful discussions, and family fun. For more information or to register, visit www.wittenbergacademy.org and click on the registration tab. It's not about you. It's about Jesus for you. You're listening to Issues Etc. People
3: are talking about the Lutheran Federal Credit Union. Lutheran FCU was created solely to serve LCMS workers, families, and entities, and proceeds benefit LCMS organizations. Lutheran FCU offers deposit accounts and loans and has service access at thousands of branches and ATMs nationwide. Lutheran FCU also offers members Christian-based lending advice for new loans and refinancing, minimal account fees, and superior personalized service. Check them out at lutheranfcu.org.
0: Do you long for a church where the gospel of the sinner's free justification is front and center, and yet where a robust sacramental life is confessed and lived? Do you long for a church that rejoices in the sacred scriptures as the sole basis for the church's teaching and proclamation, yet values and listens to the witness of the ancient fathers and councils? Welcome to the Lutheran Church. We are what you've been looking for. Find a Christ-centered, cross-focused church near you on the Find the Church page at issuesetc.org.
1: Welcome back. We're hearing the case against vision-casting leaders in the church from Pastor Chris Rosebro from the 2015 Issues, etc., making the case Conference. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues, etc. By the way, you can meet and hear Chris Rosebro at the 2017 Summer Issues, etc. Making the Case Conference. Chris will be making the case against modern-day prophets and apostles in the church. Registration for the conference is $120 and includes three meals. The rest of the speaking lineup includes Matt Harrison, Aaron Wolf, Peter Bender, Terry Mattingly, and Todd Peppercorn. You'll find additional details at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference Friday, June 9th and Saturday, June 10th in Collinsville, Illinois. Let's go back to the audio. Pastor Chris Rosebro takes up the subject of Andy Stanley's approach to the pastoral office.
2: So the ramifications of Stanley's thoughts, well, they're beyond measure, and in many ways beyond the scope of what I'm talking about tonight. But suffice it to say that Stanley, who is one of the central thought leaders in the seeker driven movement, is approaching the pastoral office from a completely different set of assumptions than the Lutheran reformers and the men who formulated the Book of Concord, and I would even argue the men who actually uh, wrote the Bible. Rather than see the pastor as a servant of the word, who is rightly called by a congregation to preach the word and administer the sacraments so that the people can obtain saving faith, notice the connection again between justification and the pastoral office, Um, through hearing the gospel, Stanley believes the primary function of the pastor is to lead people to follow Jesus, which Stanley defines as obeying Jesus' commands to love one another. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. You change the fundamental assumption behind the pastoral office and what he's to do, and you will either lose the gospel altogether or never hear it ever. Because everything switches to law. Think of it this way. If you truly believe in justification by grace through faith alone, it is mandatory for you to believe that the pastoral office is there by Christ for the preaching of the word and the administering of the sacraments. Because those are the means by which saving grace in that message is delivered. Right? You change the pastoral office, you can sit there and say, oh, I believe in justification by grace through faith all you want. You change the pastoral office, and the functions and the duties of that man and what he's doing, you'll never hear the gospel. When I started my radio program eight years ago, has it it really been that long? When I started my radio program, I would do sermon reviews, and there was a regular feature in the sermons that we were reviewing from Seeker Driven Churches. I called it the gospel nugget. All right? All right. Sometime in the sermon, never as a main point, you'd hear something about Jesus' death on the cross, and it had something to do with the forgiveness of sins, but it was said so quickly that if you blinked, you would have missed it. So I always pointed it out, and I had this, this sound bite of a jet doing a flyover, like just at sub Mach 1, you know? <laughs> you know. It's like, and there was the gospel nugget, <laughs> you know, and we'd try to figure out how fast it was going, right? And that was all you're going to hear it. I rarely, rarely play that that noise nowadays. Sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. No gospel at all. And what's the problem? In part, the problem is the men who are pastors, they're not pastors. Not in any biblical sense. They're not servants. They don't feel it's their duty to rightly handle God's Word. It's all about strip-mining God's Word to find those relevant life tips to help make, you know, suburban life here in the United States so much easier, you know. You know, living in the burbs is really tough. I mean, you know, you got screaming kids, you know, and then things with you and the missus, they can get a little dramatic at times, and that could cause things to become frosty in the bedroom. So we've got things that we can do to warm things up, you know. And we're going to help you all with all of that in the name of Jesus. Oh, you'll grow a church, all right. But unfortunately, I think the term that Jesus uses for churches like that in the book of Revelation is synagogue of Satan. Because Christ isn't proclaimed in his saving office. People are not called to repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They're just called to make a decision to apply biblical principles to their life so they can experience life transformation. And that's how you draw a crowd. Right? Now, Ed Stetzer and Mike Dodson. Are you familiar with Ed Stetzer, by the way? Southern Baptist, missiologist, works for Lifeway, right? Right? He and Mike Dodson wrote a book called Comeback Churches. Yeah, they're key thought leaders in the seeker-driven movement. In their book, Comeback Churches, they, they express their belief, which is almost identical to Stanley's, that the scriptures do not reveal a biblical ecclesiology, which would or should be binding on all churches. Instead, they argue that what is important in a church is that it has some form of leadership. Some form. Here's what Stetzer and Dodson said. Churches need leadership. Well, that's a fact that it's obvious in, in the New Testament. There are differences in those leadership positions, titles, and roles, but leadership is an integral part of God's plan for the church. The New Testament speaks of elders, bishops, and pastors. I would say that's not quite right. It talks about um, bishops, pastors, and deacons, I think we we'll probably be a more accurate way of talking about this, but he says, it also talks about deacons, evangelists, prophets, and apostles. The church may have organized itself differently in different places and at different times, but the churches were organized and led by leaders. So it's clear from this quote that rather than see elders, pastors, and deacons as filling standing offices within the church established by God, Stetzer and Dodson instead believe that God has established generic Leadership positions within the church, and that traditional pastors and deacons are only one way in which a church could manifest and express that what is needed in order for a biblical church to exist. See, it doesn't matter what form your ecclesiology takes; It doesn't matter what you know roles you have. What matters is that your church has leadership. That the, the leadership is the thing that really matters. So you want to have you know. The pastor of, you know, picking up trash. The pastor of parking lot ministry. Well, they, they, go to a secret-driven church. They have pastors for everything. Okay. You know, the pastor of sanitation services. What is that? Right? Well, the important thing is, well, there, there's a leadership structure. This is the way. So they continue and they say this. Um, they further explain what is needed in order for a biblical church to exist are not biblical or scripturally revealed offices. They insist that what that is, is needed is some form of leadership whose responsibility is to execute on what isn't negotiable in a biblical church, i.e. preaching, teaching, and ordinances, says Stetzer and Dodson. Ecclesiology is not a blank slate, they say, taken from cultural situations. Certain things need to be put in place for a biblical church to exist, such as some form of leadership structure and the practice of ordinances. That takes the sacraments and turns them into the law, by the way. Certainly, how we do some of those things is determined by the context, but what we do is determined by Scripture. So Stetzer and Dodson, whose book, Comeback Churches, is about helping churches that have stagnated, helps them revitalize themselves and grow. And go on, they go on to explain that comeback churches, i.e., healthy, numerically growing churches, must have missional leaders, not men filling and fulfilling the functions of the pastoral office. No, 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 no. Instead, missional leaders are those who ask the question, what cultural containers, such as worship, church style, small group ministry, will be most effective in this particular cultural context? In Stetzer and Dodson's way of thinking, the church leadership structure should be determined by by which one will help it best connect with its community. I mean, think about this for a second, okay? Think about this. It doesn't matter what you have as long as you have leadership. And in a particular cultural context, this kind of leadership is probably going to be better than that one. So if we lived in communist China, do we set up the pastor as ideological dictator? Because we're all used to that. Think about it, right? Is this not what Germany did during the Nazi era? With the Deutsche Christian movement? have you seen the photographs of the swastika on the altars in the Lutheran churches? Right? I mean, this is this is crazy stuff. Now, Rick Warren, who's arguably the premier um, the premier thought leader in the church growth, uh, you know, as far as church growth um, In the seeker-driven movement, he also shares Stetzer's and Dodson's belief. The Bible doesn't reveal an ecclesiastical structure, said Warren. In the New Testament, there's not a single explicit organizational um, pattern about the church. It It doesn't tell us how to organize the church or give us job descriptions for deacons or elders. Why did God leave the structure so vague, Warren asks, so that it could fit in every culture and every age. Can I just say that this is starting to sound like an ecclesiastical heresy? Can you have such a thing? Okay. So basically, they are opening up their Bibles, and they're doing this. They're closing their eyes and going, Nope, I don't see any structure in there at all. No, we can do whatever we want. Yeah. That's what they're doing. And they're writing about it this way. So what is clear from these statements is that by failing to recognize that the church's ecclesiology is revealed in Scripture, and that the pastoral office is in fact an office with biblically defined functions, responsibilities, and limits on its authority, and that those functions are not dependent on the cultural context in which a church exists in… Stetzer, Dodson, and Warren, like so many other church growth experts, end up teaching pastors that their duties and responsibility and authority are not defined and normed by Scripture but instead are culturally malleable and can change from one cultural context to another. It is this elastic definition of ecclesiology which is almost universally shared by evangelical church growth gurus and leadership coaches. And uh, this understanding of the pastoral office opens the door for it to be redefined and assessed according to the business world's definition of successful leaders. And so, which is going to require us to then talk about Drucker.
1: Pastor Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith and pastor of Consvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota, is making the case against vision casting leaders in the church from the 2015 Issues, Etc., Making the Case conference. On the other side of the break, we're going to hear more about Peter Drucker and. Chris is going to make some connections about this business consultant, this educator, so influential in the thinking of the church today, and especially in the thinking of those vision casting leaders.
0: An oasis in the desert of Pop American
1: Christianity, you're listening to Issues, etc. Do you know the five things you definitely should not hear in an Easter sermon? Better still, would you recognize the five things you absolutely should? Here's a hint: expect to hear Jesus. Read the April edition of the Lutheran Witness to learn more. Not a subscriber? Go to cph.org/slash Lutheran witness. For a special offer of six issues for only $6.99, The Lutheran Witness, Interpreting the Contemporary World from a Lutheran Perspective, cph.org slash try Lutheran Witness.
0: Jesus the Good Shepherd says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. We invite you to join us as we listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd and follow him who gives us eternal life. Sunday worship services at 9 a.m. Sunday school and Bible class at 1030. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, Arnold, Missouri, on the web at goodshepherdarnold.org. That's goodshepherdarnold.org.
1: Welcome back to Issues, et cetera. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Tuesday, April the 18th, we are making the case against vision casting leaders in the church. Pastor Chris Rosebro doing so from the 2015 Issues Etc. Making the Case conference. He had mentioned business consultant Peter Drucker before in his influence in the thinking of vision casting leaders. Here he is making some more connections regarding Peter Drucker.
2: If you've heard my lecture from a few years ago called Resistance is Feudal, You'll Be Assimilated into the Community. In my lecture, I made a point of pointing out that post-modernity actually has a historical antecedent, and that historical antecedent is, and I apologize for this, it's going to be politically incorrect, 20th century fascism. Okay, This is just not disputable. Okay? If you can never figure out what fascism was... It's well. It's kind of this basic ideology. It's a reaction to the Enlightenment. It's it's a counter Enlightenment philosophy. So the Enlightenment talks about the individual. The counter Enlightenment talks about the collective, right? So that you kind of have to think about it on that level. So, in in the Enlightenment philosophy, the primary unit in society is the citizen. In fascistic Post-counter- or counter-enlightenment ideology, the smallest unit is actually the collective body itself. Plain and simple. And here's the thing. Peter Drucker, and this is where it gets important, Peter Drucker is the guy who invented the modern corporation. Right? And Peter Drucker is the guy who, well, surprise, also had something to do with the creation of the modern secret-driven megachurch. And this is not an accident. And what a lot of people don't realize about Drucker is that Drucker was an ideologue. And he was a counter-enlightenment ideologue. He actually held to a form of fascism. Now, I I say that, you've got to be careful. I'm not saying he was a fascist. He was a staunch uh, hater of Nazism. Let's, Let's make that clear. He was not a Nazi. In fact, he was very much opposed to the Nazis, which is why he ended up in the United States. But still, he had the same worldview they did. And that's the important thing. Drucker did not believe in the existence of the individual in time and space. He believed that the individual did not exist here, but the individual only exists face-to-face before God in another polar existence. And this, where did he get this? He got this from uh, Soren Kierkegaard. So he was an existentialist, spiritual fascist. Okay? No joke. So when, when World War II is over, Drucker goes to work to kind of fix the mess that the Nazis made. Because fundamentally he thought that they were right, they just went about it the wrong way. And he thinks that the reason why they went about it the wrong way is because the Nazis were materialist fascists, which means they denied the existence of the spiritual. And so he came up with fascism 2.0, which is now called communitarianism. And communitarianism basically teaches, well, listen, it's all about the collective, but we're not materialists. We also believe that religion is important, because when you believe there's a God and you're a a fascist, you won't murder everybody. (laughs) Yay. Okay. (laughs) So here's the thing. Drucker's the common linchpin between the seeker-driven movement and... Well, the corporate world. He's the guy who invented both. So after World War II, he goes to work, working for General Motors, and he, in the process, kind of invents the modern corporation. The whole point of the modern corporation is this. You, because you are living in a society that's all about the individual, you have been snowed. You don't understand the importance of community. So what we're going to do is we're going to create communities everywhere, and we're going to just turn work into community. And what we're going to do is we're going to put work in, you know, turn work into community, and we're going to put in place a leadership model, let's say, developed by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Okay? By the way, why is it that the French Revolution turned out so poorly as opposed to the American Revolution? The American Revolution was an Enlightenment revolution. The French Revolution was the first truly fascist rev- revolution. Rousseau and Kant are the seedbed of fascist philosophy, okay? So, you know, Robespierre and these guys, they had kind of drunk the fascistic counter-enlightenment cocktail. That's why it turned out as poorly as it did. Just a little side note. And that's the thing. These guys are always trying to get it right. We think we've got now this, this ideology of the collective where we won't murder everybody. Are you sure you got it right this time? Okay. So, Drucker decides rather than make the nation state the collective, make work the collective, and at the top of it, we're going to put a visionary leader. And the whole it, goal of the, of the modern corporation is for you to feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. And Drucker spent decades working on this, and then he gets into the 80s and he goes, You know, it's not working like I thought it would. And he switches, he completely, practically completely, abandons business. And starts focusing in on the modern megachurches. Becomes buddies with Rick Warren and Bill Hybels and Bob Buford. He actually kind of tutors them. And the whole idea was, we're not creating real community in the workplace. Let's do it in megachurches. The whole point of a megachurch is for you to walk in and feel like you've lost the sense of your own self. You melt into the collective. That's the whole idea. And what was the leadership model that Drucker put in place for this collective approach to church? It has a name, by the way. It has a name. Rousseau calls it the plebiscite. The Nazis tried it. It was called the Fuhrer Princip when they tried it. Okay, and let me let's read about this. This is the controversial part, by the way. Do this if you're upset. All right. Let me read. Peter Drucker, who's the ideological mind behind the secret-driven church movement, along with the fascists of the 20th century, bought into Rousseau's philosophical worldview, which denied the existence of the individual in time. Said Drucker, it was Rousseau who formulated the idea that whatever human existence there is, whatever the freedom, rights, and duties the individual has— Whatever meaning there is in an individual life, all is determined by society according to society's objective need of survival. The individual, in other words, is not autonomous. He is determined by society. He is free only in matters that do not matter. He has rights only because society concedes them. He has a will only if he wills what society needs. His life has meaning only insofar as it relates to the social meaning and as it fulfills uh, fulfills itself in fulfilling the objective goal of society. There is, in short, no human existence, there is only social existence, there is no individual, there is only the citizen. Direct quote from Drucker. And this is the guy most responsible for this, the model, the ecclesiastical model employed in secret driven churches, right? It was also Rousseau who laid the foundation for the leadership model that was to be employed by those who subscribed to this ideological worldview. Rousseau provides the details of this model in his book, The Social Contract. In that work, Rousseau claims that the state is a collective organism in which all individual liberties are assimilated or synthesized, and what emerges from this communal collective organism is what's called the general will, which they, which they then can mystically and spiritually be embodied into a single leader or sovereign. So think of it this way, Okay. The collective is the only thing that exists, that's all that exists, and when the collective comes together as an organic whole, somehow mystically, in Rousseau's way of thinking, almost spiritually, if you would, a leader will emerge who somehow can tap into and mystically embody the will and need of the collective. This is the Fuhrer, right? Okay? Okay. Now, Edward Yonkins of Wheeling Jesuit University, he summarized Rousseau's ideas in his 2005 article entitled, ''Rousseau's General Will and Well-Ordered Society,'' said Youngkins. ''The idea of the general will is at the heart of Rousseau's philosophy.'' The general will is not the will of the majority. So don't think of it this way. So when we're talking about this mystical general will of the collective. It's not we voted in 51% won. That's not it. No, no, no. Rather, it's the will of the political organism that he sees as an entity with a life of its own. The general will is an additional will some, somehow distinct from... And other than any individual will or group of individual wills. The general will is by some means endowed with goodness and wisdom surpassing the beneficence and wisdom of any person or collective of persons. Society is coordinated and unified by the general will. Rousseau believed that this general will will actually exist and that it demands the unqualified obedience of every individual. He held that there is only one general will, and consequently only one supreme good, and a single overriding goal towards which a community must aim. The general will is always a force of the good and the just. It is independent, totally sovereign, infallible, and inviolable. The result is that all powers, persons, and their rights are under the control and direction of the community." Is this freaking you out yet? Okay. All power is transferred to a central authority or sovereign, and that is the total community. Major decisions are made by a vote-by-all in what Rousseau calls a plebiscite, that is something like a town meeting without the benefit of debate. A legislator proposes laws but does not decide on them. The legislator is a person or an intellectual elite body that works out carefully worded alternatives, brings people together, and has the people vote with the results binding on all. The authority of the legislator derives from his superior insight, charisma, virtue, and mysticism. The legislator words the propositions with the plebiscite so that the right decision will result. The right decisions are those that change human nature, the unlimited power of the state is made to appear legitimate by the apparent consensus of the majority. Now, I know this is complicated. Okay, Know what I'm saying is complicated, but basically think of it this way. It's magic. Okay, The collective magically, spiritually, has a will, and somehow that will takes on a form and can actually come to a visionary, charismatic leader, and that charismatic leader is the one. He's the one, right? It's kind of like a Messiah. It's kind of like the Antichrist. It's kind of like really creepy, right? <laughs> now, here's the issue, okay? So, Rousseau, he, in his social contract, you can read about this. It's free on, on the internet, by the way. It's in the, it's in the public domain. Read the social contract. Explicitly spells all this out. This was theory when Rousseau wrote it. And Robespierre and the gang tried to implement it during the time of the French Revolution, and that thing blew apart. It was then employed again in the 20th century with Hitler and Mussolini. And in the the Nazi version, they called it the Fuhrer Principle, the leadership principle. That's what they called it. All right? And now it has been redeployed. This is Rousseau's plebiscite model. It has been redeployed in seeker-driven churches across the country and the world. And there's a spin on it. Here's how the spin works. Rather than the collective general will, it's the will of God. And somehow, here's how this works. I I would recommend a book called Transitioning by Dan Sutherland. And here's the idea. A pastor can make himself worthy to receive a direct vision from God. All right? And the way he makes himself worthy is by showing God just how serious he is about receiving the vision. And the way he shows God how serious he is, is he goes and he, he, he fasts, he prays, you know, maybe he does so on his knees, you know, without knee pads, you know, that'll show God, right? But if God sees that, you know, he's 70% serious about receiving this vision, God will give him 70% of it, Right? And so the idea is, is that God has this ideal vision for an individual community in a particular cultural context, and I mean faith community here. And the pastor shows himself worthy to receive the vision, and then once he's done the steps necessary, notice the Lutheran confessions absolutely rule this out in that article that I pointed out in Article 5, right? But they makes himself worthy. Then God does this, Right? And he, oh, he receives the vision. Okay? This is how it happens. You guys are mocking it. Okay. So once he receives the vision, now, unlike Moses, his face doesn't stop, start glowing. But his job then is to actually cast the vision to a self. Uh, he selects a leadership team around him. And he casts the vision to them. Now, in this model... All authority is at the top and kind of tapers down. So the idea is is that the the vision-casting leader, the only person he's accountable to is God. And he, in a sense, becomes like a prophet because he's received a direct revelation for how we're going to do church in this particular cultural context. And lo and behold, it's just like every other seeker-driven church. I had this vision from God, and we're supposed to do church for the unchurched. Whoa. Okay. Shabbat. All right, so... (laughs) Had to do it. (laughs) Okay. And so the leadership team then, they cast the vision down to the people below them. It goes all the way down to the parking lot guy. And so the idea is, is that the vision always flows down. All the responsibility is down at the bottom. Does that make sense? And this is purely based on Rousseau's model. And Drucker intentionally put it there. This is his model. This is his baby. The guy still ideologically is a counter-enlightenment collectivist of the fascist stripe at its core. And this is the model that's being employed in the church. Now, let me read to you a historical example of this, okay? Again, this is really politically incorrect. From the Nuremberg trials of the Nazi war criminals, um, there was a cross-examination of Goering regarding the Fuhrer Princip which I'm very happy took place that Justice Jackson actually had these questions asked of Gehring. And just listen to the the parallels with the uh, secret-driven ecclesiology. Uh, says, uh, uh, Justice Jackson says to Gehring, uh, "'You are perhaps aware that you are the only living man who can expound to us the true purposes of the Nazi Party and the inner workings of its leadership.' "'I'm perfectly aware of that,' Gehring says Jackson." You, from the very beginning, together with those who were associated with you, intended to overthrow and later did overthrow the Weimar Republic. Goering, that was, as far as I'm concerned, my firm intention. Jackson, and upon coming to power, you immediately abolished parliamentary government in Germany. To which I say, when a secret-driven vision-casting leader comes to power, all voter assemblies stop, by the way. Goering, we found it to be no longer necessary. Also, I should like to emphasize the fact that we were moreover the strongest parliamentary party and had the majority, but you are correct when you say that parliamentary procedure was done away with because the various parties were disbanded and forbidden. Jackson, you established the leadership principle, the Fuhrer Principle, which you have described as a system under which authority existed only at the top and is passed downwards and is imposed on the people below. Is that correct? well, in order to avoid any misunderstanding, I should like once more to explain the idea briefly as I understand it. In German parliamentary procedure in the past, responsibility rested with the highest officials who were responsible for carrying out the anonymous wishes of the majorities, and it was they who exercised the authority. In the leadership principle, we sought to reverse the direction. That is, the authority existed at the top and passed downwards, while the responsibility began at the bottom and passed upwards. Jackson, in other words, you did not believe in and did not permit government, as we call it, by consent of the governed, in which the people thought, though their representatives were the source of power and authority. Garing, that's not entirely correct. We repeatedly called on the people to express unequivocally and clearly what they thought of our system, only it was in a different way from that previous adopted and from the system in practice in other countries. We chose the way of the so-called plebiscite. We also took the point of view that even a government founded on the leadership principle could maintain itself only if it was based in some way on the confidence of the people. If it no longer had such confidence, then it would have to rule with bayonets. And the Fuhrer was always of the opinion that that was impossible in the long run to rule against the will of the people. But you did not permit, Jackson says, the election of those who should act with the authority by the people, but they were designated from the top downward continuously, were they not? That is quite right. The people were merely to acknowledge the authority of the Fuhrer or, let us say, to declare themselves in agreement with the Fuhrer. What happens to somebody in a secret driven church if they question the vision of the vision-casting leader? They are thrown under the bus. In many cases, they actually have um, restraining orders filed against them and things like that. So here's the idea, since I'm running out of time, rapidly, if I haven't already overstepped my my authority here. We took a look at what Scripture says. Scripture says that there are offices established in the church. There are duties of the office, and the office holders are to dispense those duties, and that they are servants. The seeker-driven movement, because evangelicalism firmly believes that there is no ecclesiastical structure revealed in Scripture. It's whatever goes in any particular cultural context. That's what they believe. And a large swath of evangelical churches have adopted quite, I think, I would say innocently in this sense. They didn't know what they were buying, okay? They just they did not know that what they were really buying was Rousseau's plebiscite model, which has, has been tried historically by the fascists. They didn't know that. But in reality, the seeker-driven, vision-casting leader model, which turns a vision-casting leader into a prophet, false prophet at that, the whole model itself doesn't have its origin in Scripture. It has its origin in counter-enlightenment philosophy. And it's an extremely dangerous model. And since Article 4 and 5 are inextricably linked you put the wrong ecclesiology in a church, you're gonna lose Article 4. There's just no way about it. You want to keep and protect the gospel in your congregations. Don't buy the lie that pastors are swappable and interchangeable with vision-casting leaders. They're not. Vision-casting leaders are very dangerous. Ideologically, they are a threat to the church and we have seen the damage that they have done. And unfortunately, Lutherans, they're always way behind the curve. We, we, we Lutherans right now, we like to party like it's 1999, right? <laughs> yeah. And what has already shown to, itself to be destructive in evangelicalism, LCMS Lutherans have just now discovered, okay? That's because they're behind the times. But well, we've already seen where this all leads. And what it leads to is a loss of the gospel. And when you lose the gospel, you you lose people being brought to saving faith in Christ. And that's really what's at stake in all of this. All right. Thank you.
1: Chris Rosebro, Fighting for the Faith. That's Pastor Chris Rosebro making the case against vision casting leaders in the church from the 2015 Issues Etc. Making the Case conference. We'll hear another presentation from the 2015 Issues Etc. Making the Case conference tomorrow. Pastor Jonathan Fisk will be making the case for the church's response to postmodernism, and we'll discuss the great 50 days of Easter with Pastor Heath Curtis. The church does not need the visions of vision-casting leaders. In fact, they are extremely dangerous. The church needs the Word of God. These visions that pastors either think up or believe that they are getting from God, they are not getting from God. They might be good ideas. They might be terrible ideas. Most often, they do something else. They distract from what God is saying in his word, where God has spoken in his word, his word of law and gospel. Ultimately, your pastor's visions distract from the one who is revealed in Scripture, from Jesus himself, from his saving work for you, from his cross. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. I'll talk with you tomorrow on Issues Etc.
0: Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.